Hello again, this is Ashley at Recovery Radio, and I'm here to tell you that we received a letter from a fellow in the U.S. military this week, thanking us for providing spiritual assistance to the troops. It was written by a chaplain with an understanding of alcoholism in a combat environment. He believes we provide a much-needed spiritual sanctuary for alcoholics in high-stress situations. Please help us keep the sanctuary open by going to recoveryradio.net and donating. Your money will be put to immediate use, helping us fulfill our mission of providing quality audio support 24-7-365. Conference, and I hope you all will enjoy your talk as much as I anticipate. And please. Good evening, everyone. Hi. My name is Anne. I'm from a town called Lucerville. It's outside of Baltimore, and very few people have ever heard of it. And we've got drunk there, just like every place else. It's indeed an honor to be here, and it's a wonderful day to start a convention or a conference. It's Valentine's Day. And I guess I was chosen to speak tonight because I'm such a sweetheart. (laughs) I had quite a story. I don't know what happened to me. I was raised, in case you hadn't already noticed it, in North Carolina. I ended up in Baltimore. I went there to die and found AA instead. It was quite a shock. My dad was a professor at the University of North Carolina there in Chapel Hill. He was a professor of psychology. And he took great pains when I was young to try to arrange it so that I would never have any trauma or neuroses, or psychoses, or anything happening to this darn little girl. I had three strikes against me to begin with. I was red-headed, left-handed, and an only child. <laughs> there was a conflict of interest in our home. My mother was a very gentle woman, and she wanted me to write portraits and maybe go in for art. And I was given extensive piano training. My father, on the other hand, wanted me to be a sports writer and to get out into the world and see what was going on. When I became of age to go to college, a lot of people tell me, don't bring up all this education business. Well, I can't help it that I was forced to go to college and get an education, and I just have to live that down as best I can. I had a terrible time. (laughs) I had an awful time. My father wanted me to go in for all these uh, more sporty things, my uh, my choice was to become a doctor. And to show you a little indication here of uh, alcoholic tendencies from the very beginning, I wanted to be a doctor, not just a doctor, a surgeon, not just a surgeon, a brain surgeon. <laughs> my father thought this was all right. My mother was very worried about it and didn't want me to go into medicine. She said she was afraid I might have to see a naked man. <laughs> I 
I can't remember now that anything very dramatic occurred. I went to school. I got out of college, and I married at the right time, and I married a young attorney, very promising young fellow. I had a baby at the right time, a fine boy who was redheaded and turned up nose in the pride of my life. And things that went wrong during this time, I used to blame my drinking on these circumstances. Now I realize this didn't have anything to do with it. The fellow that I was married to was an alcoholic. And we were living in a little town down in North Carolina, and I didn't know anything about alcoholism, really. And all I knew was he was acting up and staying out late and going out with other girls. And where I came from, when your husband started acting like that, you went home for that. And I did. Now, about this time, <laughs> later psychiatrists explained all this to me. It was very interesting. I'd never thought of it. They said I had a father's complex with a mother fixation. That is really going some. Now, fortunately for me, or unfortunately, when I got back to Chapel Hill, which was just a plain college town for many years, they imported the United States. Navy. I have never seen so many good-looking naval officers in my life, and I was young, and this was World War II that this all occurred, and I went back to my hometown, and I began going to an officer's club to drink, and this was quite something in our town. You know, we have ABC stores, and uh, you can't get liquor just everywhere, and you have to sign and all this business. It's a great mission. Uh, I began drinking. And I did not begin drinking because I had a tragic marriage or a little child to bring up and all these sad things I used to sit in bars later and tell the bartender about. <laughs> this is not why I started drinking. I started drinking because I liked whiskey and I liked the naval officers and I liked the circumstances under which I found myself and I was free and had another chance at life, so forth and so on. So I cannot honestly say that this is why I began to drink. However, within about six months, I began to have all of the symptoms, not recognizing them, of course, at the time. But I would say that within six months, you black out all of your little uh, things that begin cropping up uh, in relation to your drinking began with me. And I immediately began on the great, tragic, down road. Alcoholic women are very funny creatures. We have to have a purpose for living. Uh, as soon as I began to get in trouble with alcohol, I immediately started on campaigns to justify my existence. Number one, I decided that a life of self-sacrifice was in order. I would go into hospital work, having been denied the privilege of being a great brain surgeon. I would give myself to others. And I began working in hospitals. And I nursed various types of patients. The ones that I remember the most were the unwed mothers who despised me. <laughs> I couldn't understand why they were in the shape they were in, and they couldn't understand why I was in the shape I was in. And it was a mess all the way around, and I decided I had gotten off on the wrong track. The self-sacrifice was for the birds, and you weren't appreciated in the first place, and I didn't like it in the second place. And what I needed in my life was a little glamour. To show you the condition of my mind, 
I went to work for Arthur Murray. I don't know where I got the idea that I was going to be floating around on a dance floor with beautiful music playing in the arms of a rich and handsome man. What happened at Arthur Murray's is this. <laughs> All the men I ever saw weighed 250 pounds, two left feet, no sense of rhythm, and psychological problems, if you know what I mean. <laughs> There's only one profession I can think of that is more horrifying to me to think about when you are in about the second stages of alcoholism. And that is to be a manicurist. I can't imagine anything worse than being a manicurist and an alcoholic. <clears throat> because every morning, just teaching dancing, I always had a choice. Am I going to smell or am I going to shake? And this is some kind of a decision to have to make every morning. My pupils used to report me sometimes. They said they thought their teachers had a nervous disorder. And boy, they weren't far from wrong. I'm the one who invented, in case there are any people here tonight who have been to Murray's, I invented a particular procedure at Murray's to protect myself. It is called, Let the People Dance Alone. <laughs> to gain self-control and balance. And I would stand at one end of the ballroom and have the people dance towards me to watch his footwork. Actually, I was trying to keep him from smelling my breath or getting hold of one of my clammy, shaky hands. <clears throat> Arthur Murray and I, I learned a lot of things from Arthur Murray, but uh, we parted company, and I understand they're still in business. Uh, <laughs> in spite of it. Now, this was a very disheartening uh, thing to happen. I, uh, here I was, uh, not too old, still in my 20s. And along about this period, I met a young man. And he was a very handsome young man, but he was a very young man. He was 21 and I was 28. And that's an awful gap there. And I had some money and I married this young man. And this was one of these brutal, horrifying marriages that you hear about. Every nasty thing that could be said by one party to the other in this marriage was said. And he accused me of being an old hag, and I accused him of not being dry behind the ears, and there was knocking down the stairs and cushions, and he used to refer to how I was born in the Civil War and all this kind of business. It was just one of these nasty things. I decided after that, you know, there are a lot of women who hear me keep speaking and they say, oh, I can't identify with her. <laughs> I never did any of those things, but I always say, you probably didn't get the chance. <laughs> Every woman I've ever known in AA that was worth her salt. At one time or another, got the idea that she would like to go to New York. Everyone. They didn't go to New York, perhaps, because of circumstances, but everyone wanted to go to New York. And I went to New York. Before I went to New York, I had tried about everything with my drinking. I had gone to five psychiatrists, 
that's when I learned about the father complex and the mother fixation. And I got electric shock treatments, and I got insulin shock treatments, and I was psychoanalyzed, and the couch, and all the other things that go along with it. And I made a decision as I left for New York that it was very unfortunate I had a drinking problem and all these emotional things, but that I was going to have to make the best of it. And I decided that I would continue to drink in spite of being an alcoholic, and that was that. And for 10 years, that is exactly what I did. Now I went to New York, and while I was in New York, and drunk, naturally, I met an Arab. <laughs> now, what is wrong with this Arab? But he was misinformed. He told me that my problem was that the United States wasn't big enough for me. <laughs> he said I belonged to the world. I think he had been drinking that evening also. But in any case, I married this Arab. And he took me away to Arabia. Now, I've seen a lot of movies about Arabia. And I was expecting to see a lot of things. I also had heard it was a dry country. And I had hoped, perhaps, that since it was such a dry country, that maybe I might dry out also. But when I got there... I didn't see anything. I've never seen a sheep, not one. I've never seen a white Arabian horse. I've never seen one of those wonderful tents they always have in those movies, <laughs> where they've got oil rugs on the floor and a lot of people sitting around just taking it easy, and they always got big baskets of fruit, and somebody's always nibbling on grapes, and they've always got dancing girls, and it just looked like heaven in the movies, and I never saw any of these things. And this is where I stopped bathing completely, with Arabia. <laughs> it wasn't that there wasn't any water ever. There's very little. People used to make fun of the Arabs. They all the time saying, oh, they're such a dirty people. Well, if you didn't have any water, you wouldn't be such a rose yourself. And uh, the water was too hot to take a bath. That is a new one, in case any of you are looking for any excuses. It wasn't too cold or too scarce. It was too hot. You had to wait till midnight to take a bath, and I just couldn't last that long. <laughs> now, the Arab was transferred over to a country called Somaliland. It's on the east coast of Africa, on the Indian Ocean, and there ain't nothing there. <laughs> nothing. Except a few camels and those short-tailed lions, not to be confused with long-tailed lions like you see in the zoo, with those long tails with those blobs on the end. These short tail lines are very ferocious and an entirely different breed. And they're frantic because there just isn't anything to eat over there. There's some snakes and there's things like this and a lot of Somalis. And uh, I got over there and you know that when I first entered that country, I said to myself, this is it. This is what I was made for. All alcoholic women by the time they're entering the third stage of alcoholism wonder what in the world they were meant for. And suddenly I knew I was the only American woman in the whole country. And one of the young Somalis came to me and asked through an interpreter if this lovely American woman would be so kind as to teach English to a group of young Somali men so that they could maybe have some trade relations with some other countries, thanks to me. And, and the tears just rolled down my cheeks. 
Here, here was the answer. This is what I had been intended for, to speak English and to teach English to these poor people. And so I started English class. Now, if you think my accent is bad, when I'm sober and talking to you now, you should hear it when I'm drunk. I am the original honey child in her. And by the time I had taught English to these poor, unsuspecting Somalis, for a good year, they were all speaking English, all right, with a drunken southern accent. <laughs> you know, Somaliland got its independence from Italy in 1960, and they joined the United Nations. And I was sober by this time, been sober several years, and I was watching television. And I just hoped against hope that perhaps, you know, one of my students would be the delegate to the United Nations. But no, it was too much to hope for. They wouldn't have done that to that country. I remember to show the state of my mind that one time when the British consul came through there, he had heard about this lovely woman and the flower American womanhood bringing light to the dark continent and all this kind of stuff. And he came into my class and I was loaded and with these poor boys sitting there, I was telling them in English the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And they don't even have any wolves over there. They didn't even know what I was talking about. I had some dreadful experiences in Somaliland. I told off lions. They kept telling me, don't go into the bushes. And I said, well, I would have to go into the bushes. And uh, I would go in the bushes with the attitude, they aren't going to bother me, those lions. They wouldn't dare. I'm an American citizen. This was my attitude towards the entire trip over there. I traveled thousands of miles by jeep, drugs the whole way. And I don't imagine that country will ever recover from the impression that I left. Sometimes when I read steps eight and nine about making amends, I feel like I ought to hop on the next boat and go over there to Somaliland and do something about the damage that I caused and the impression that I left. It was really disgraceful. I will say something uh, for anyone who is even remotely considering getting drunk again. Go to Somaliland. <laughs> you are not supposed to look good in Somaliland. It's on an equator. It's 110 degrees all year round, all hours of the day. Your eyes are supposed to be bloodshot from the sun. You're supposed to shake. Everybody's got malaria. And you're not supposed to eat anything. I lived off of soup from Italy and camel meat. And, uh, and you're not supposed to come away from that country looking good. You could go there and get drunk easily and come back and nobody would be the wiser. They'd just figure it was the climate. <laughs> now, this is funny now. Really. It was a degrading experience. Uh, I said it was women alcoholics, perhaps with everyone. My loss of dignity didn't suddenly come all in one big blow overnight. A lot of people like to feel that they were just doing fine with their drinking, just great, and then all of a sudden something happened once they fell down the middle of the street and then their dignity was gone. I feel that with my alcoholism and my drinking and the life that I lived, that little by little and inch by inch, as the days went past, I lost a little more of my dignity. And by the time I came back to the United States, I was pretty flat 
in the dignity department. And a lot of terrible things began to happen to me when I came back home. Number one, I lost the Arab. And Arabs aren't easy to come by. <laughs> My poor child, whom I love dearly, and I am not trying to show what a terrible alcoholic I was. I'm trying to show you the power of this terrific disease. He was a boy, the only one I could ever have, looked like me, red-haired, intelligent kid, whom I had left at the mercies of various schools all over the country, never saw him, never paid much attention to what was going on aside from writing him growing letters about what a heroine his mother was over there teaching English to those Somalis. And when I got back to the United States, and found that I was beginning to get so that I couldn't hold a job and would have to resign every five minutes. I don't know, we seem to have a sixth sense about this. We don't get fired all the time. We just resign. Just as the man's coming down the hall to give you your last paycheck, you rush up there and you say, I'll resign. Just as quick as that. But things had gotten into such a terrible condition in my life that I really had nowhere to go. I had no money. I was living in New York. And I lost my child through the court. It is an awful thing for a woman to stand in a courtroom and have a judge tell her that he considers that she is an unfit mother and to give the child to a father, the father also being an alcoholic, but who being a lawyer, has been a little more crafty, didn't go to nuthouses all the time, didn't get in trouble all the time. His record was much better than mine. My kid was heartbroken because he knew what his father was and he knew what his mother was. And I, I stood and watched this thing happen. And a lot of people, as they always do with us women alcoholics, they said, now she'll learn. Now she'll straighten up. Now they've taken her child away. I hope she's satisfied. This kind of thing doesn't work with us. I just went into the bottle entirely at this point. I just gave up and lived 24 hours around the clock thinking only of the bottle. Now, I had to work because I was one of these weeping drunks. A couple of drinks and I'd go all to pieces and start crying and tell my life story. And a lot of girls can go out and keep drinking and have somebody buy them drinks. No man in his right mind is going to keep buying drinks for a woman who is sitting and crying and sobbing and telling him about what a hard life she's had and how many husbands she's had and blah, blah, blah. He will go to the men's room and you'll never see him again. <laughs> so I had to hold on to a little job. And my last stand was in Baltimore. Have you ever sat on a bus trying to get your job and looked at all the happy people on the street? They're probably miserable. But I used to look at them and wonder, I wonder what it would be like to feel good, to look good, to have a decent job, to have somebody who cared about me. It didn't seem possible that such a thing could be in this world. Now, I'm not going to tell you any series of dirty little events that took place in my life. I don't think this is necessary in a talk. I don't dwell on, on dirt and, and nasty items because I feel this is more or less taken for granted. 
If you're an alcoholic woman and alone in this world, a lot of awful things happen to you that you don't plan. But I do want to tell you of one incident which I think is terrifically significant. You know, people all the time criticizing alcoholic women because they're all the time taking their clothes off. <laughs> and they think it's because we, we're being cute or something. And they don't seem to understand that when you are drunk, and sick and threaten, you can't stand all those clothes <laughs> all over you. I had a lot of problems with clothing. Uh, I used to try to take sweaters up off over the top of my head, and I'd get in there and I couldn't find the odds. <laughs> you can get in those sweaters sometimes if you're drunk and never get out of it. <laughs> so from the very beginning of the last downhill road of mine, I got smart and I bought myself a dress that opened down the front. And I had a certain trick that worked wonders. I found that with a dress that opened down the front, at night when I was drinking real heavy and trying to get to bed, that I could take all of my clothes off in just one movement. That included all underwear, girdles, and hose. Everything all intact. And you can gently put it on a chair. And when you get up the next morning, you haven't got to go hunting around here and hunting around there and looking for this, looking for that. You've got it all consolidated right in one spot. I couldn't have existed if I hadn't had a few systems. Well, I took over my clothes this night drunk as usual. Somehow I had the idea, if I just went to bed early enough, that when I woke up I wouldn't have a hangover. I don't know why I clung to that idea and I went to bed early or early. Five as soon as I got home from work, I'd go right to bed. Figure I'd feel real good the next morning after a good night's sleep. And I smoked a lot when I was drinking, and I still smoked. And during the night, I must have really uh, had a, a bad night because I noticed the next morning that I had jumped over an ashtray in the night and there were some beer cans around. And I was hunting for a cigarette, I remember. Why do we always put cigarettes in the ashtray where there's beer spent. They're all the time floating around on the top. And you try to dry them out on the radiator and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, the room was a shambles. I remember, I was living in the back room. I had an, an, an aunt who was an old maid, aunt, a much older sister of my mother's, who had let me have a back room in her home. And I remember getting up that morning and finding my clothing and putting it on in the usual manner, all in one big uh, movement there, and finding my uh, bus fare to go to this terrible job I had that I hated, but I had to drink and so I had to work. And I got outside and got on the bus, and that in itself is a terrible problem people don't understand about. If you hand a man a dollar, that means you've got to hold your hand out there for the change. And then, on the other hand, if you have the exact change, you try to keep it gripped until you can get it into that little thing. Ordinary people don't understand problems like this. This is a terrible thing to go through every morning. And by the time I got to my favorite seat in the back of the bus going downtown, I began to have the dry heat. This is a terrible thing on a public conveyance in the morning to have it and try to cough real loud. You know, to keep people from knowing. Four little girls got on the bus. High school students. 
in their little blue uniforms and their little blue boomers with their little books. And they sat behind the driver on a long seat. And they were looking at me. And they began to laugh. And there is nothing more unearthly in God's screen than four teenage girls having the giggles at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and the more they looked at me, the more they laughed. And I am not that funny. <laughs> and as I watched them, I noticed that they were paying special attention to my legs. And my legs aren't that funny. And finally, I got up the nerve to look down at myself. And in my hole was cigarette butter. Oh, Little pieces of paper. Burned out mess. It was the most ungodly looking mess you have ever seen. What are you going to do? Bring him up down and find a situation like this. I couldn't very well empty my whole life. <laughs> you know, something happened to me. Something happened to me. Up until this time, I had never really faced what was going on. It was my wicked husband who had taken my child. It was my tragic childhood. It was that bitter marriage with the young man. It was going to Africa. Heaven knows that's enough to make an alcoholic out of anybody. It was my father complex and my mother's vexation and everything under God's earth you can think of. But when you find yourself sitting on a public bus with your hose like a human crossbow, Something snapped. This is food. This is alcohol. You are in what awful mess. This is what you have become. And you had better stop blaming it on everything under God's earth. This is what food does to a woman. Three weeks later, I was in there. Believe me. I don't think that humiliating experiences are wonderful experiences. A lot of times people think I'm a very cruel sponsor. You know, there's something they say in Baltimore. They call in and they, if they've ever been around AA, and they're a retread. They say, I need somebody to help me. But please don't send Ann Packer. <laughs> Because I believe sometimes that if a girl is having difficulty, perhaps it might be because she has never been deeply humiliated. I think it's one of the most valuable things that can happen to a woman. I have never forgotten that experience. Now, I got in there yet. And I wish I had time to tell you all the details and how I got and so forth and where I was. I looked like a dickens. I know that. And I was drunk when I called AA on a Saturday night. I was very picky. I figured they wouldn't have anybody on Saturday night to make a call. And I got fooled because two of them arrived at 11 o'clock at night. And I was in. And that was all there was to it. Nobody asked me 
about would I like this and would I like that. They told me they picked me up for the meeting the next night, and there was something about the way they said it that I figured I'd either have to leave town or they'd be there. <laughs> the dignity I'm talking about, the humiliation I'm talking about, that started many years before, and which gradually, day by day, got lower and lower and lower. I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, part of great policy with women is, we want all of a sudden to regain everything. We're perfectly miserable because now we've stopped drinking, and now we want somebody to come and hand us our dignity back, and our self-respect back, and our material things back again. And I say that takes the fun out of it. I found that by living one 24-hour period at a time, that inch by inch, I have gotten my dignity back. You know, the third step says that you made a decision to turn your will and your life over to God as you understood him. And a lot of people don't want that stuff. And they claim it's because God's mentioned. And they claim they don't know how to turn over. And they don't know how to do this. And they don't know how to do that. And I know why I didn't like that step. That step says, behave yourself. <laughs> and a lot of alcoholics don't like people coming around telling them to behave themselves. But I found it was the third step. I began to behave myself. Every day I behaved myself. I didn't do anything I was ashamed of or tried not to. I didn't take a drink. And as the years went by, I began to see some amazing things come about. I always bring my son in at the end of my story because it was through his eyes that I watched my own recovery. He typifies the attitude of the public. Suspicion, hope, doubt. I watched this in his face when I was first permitted to see him. I hadn't even been granted visiting privileges when I lost his custody. And as the 24-hour periods went by and I used to see him regularly, I began to watch suspicion leave and a little respect come in his face. And then the wonderful day came when I had been sober for two years and I went to meet my son at a train station. And when he came up to me, he didn't look at me that way anymore. He took for granted that his mother was sober. He went into the Army eventually, and he went over to Vietnam. But when he completed his course and got his wings down in Alabama, I stood on an airfield, and it had taken me six hours to get ready. Every hair was in place. I could hardly smile. My face was so beautifully made up. <laughs> my clothing was the very latest thing. And I watched him on that airfield. And I hadn't realized that he was going to ask me to pin his wings on. And I pinned the wings on the very boy that I had been told I must not see. And that I was an unfit mother. And he went off to Vietnam and to be in the war. And he told me, and I said, what shall I do? Shall I send you boxes? Shall I send you a letter every day? What can I do to help you in Vietnam? And he said, alcohol Anonymous has already done it. He says, the greatest gift that a parent can give a child is to fix it so that that kid doesn't have to worry about his mother. 
And he says, there's one thing for sure, while I'm in Vietnam, I'm not going to have to worry about my mother and whether she's drunk and sick and on the street. And he says, you know, that can make an awful lot of difference to a boy when he's in combat. He got married, too. He's been married two years now, and I went to that wedding, and I looked good. <laughs> and it turns my fist. All those hours of pacing up and down and up and down in an apartment and wondering why am I staying sober, what am I trying to do, all of this became clear. I feel that in Alcoholics Anonymous that if you stay sober long enough and if you are always ready, things begin to come full circle. The day came when my boy, before he even went into the Army, his father took a gun and went out in his automobile and blew his brains out because of alcoholism. And when my boy came into the, my home after that, I literally got on my knees for the first time since I'd been in England. And thank God, because I was sober and that boy had someone to go to. And then I knew why I had stayed sober. Everything comes to full circle, as far as I'm concerned, if you just wait long enough. And I haven't got time to tell you all the things that have come full circle in my life. I want to give you two little incidents that are very quick and to the point. I went and got a job, a decent job, in a department store. And I didn't go in there and tell them I'm a dancer and I'm an educator and I'm a college girl and I've been a world traveler and I've been working. I didn't tell them any of that. I said, please, could I wait on a few customers during the Christmas rush? <laughs> That's what alcoholics are done for people. They give you humility in a real big hurry. And I went in training and I learned how to write a sales check and all these things. And then they lined us all up. And the supervisor came down the row and she said, send this girl here and send this girl there. And she came to me, she said, send that girl to Hosley. <laughs> In a group got a telephone call one day. It seems that a very exclusive girls' school in Roland Park in Baltimore wanted a lady to come and talk to their young ladies about the problem of alcoholism in our fair community. And they called me and they said, uh, will you go to this school and make a talk? I've been sober about five or six years. And I said, I would be delighted. And I walked into this school and there they were in their little blue uniform. <laughs> I made that talk. I was very dignified. Then the little girls began to warm up. And I, I just couldn't stand it. I had to tell them. And I did. And one of the girls said, You know, my big sister told me about an old bag she saw once. <laughs> In closing, just one thought I want to leave with you, which more or less sums up the way I feel about AA, about God, about all the things that have happened to me. 
I got married in Alcoholics Anonymous. I stayed sober two years. And I got married. You talk about miracles. Have you ever heard of a worse candidate for marriage than a woman who had been to court, lost a child, drunk for 13 years, and had three marriages and three divorces behind her? Don't talk to me about the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I made a good marriage. And I found out that I was perfectly capable of being a good wife and of doing all the things that decent women in our community are supposed to do. But the thought that I have in gratitude and love for this program is this. When I was in Africa with the Somalis, they had an eclipse of the moon. And I have never heard such turn-on in my life. They yelled and they screamed and they beat on tin pans and they cried out and so forth. And I said, oh, this dark continent. And the next day, when I had my class in English, I gave them a lecture on the sun and the moon and the earth and all this kind of business. And I said, this is the way it really happens. And you don't have to be frightened like this anymore. And one of the fellows in the class raised his hand and he said to me, You are mistaken. We were not crying out in fear. We were crying out in great joy because we knew that God would always bring back the light after the darkness if only we asked him. Thank you so much.